Hello, and welcome back at it to another summer edition of the Life in Red podcast, lifeinredpodcast.com, Life in Red Pod on the Twitter, and Life in Red Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. My guest today, uh, we, I share a lot of like mental health stories and mental illness stories, and um, I love those because it, it really gives you a sense of the humanity of what mental illness really is and how it affects people and, and their families and lives. Um, but one thing I also like to do, and it's been a while since I've done it, is have people who actually study the science behind you know mental illness and mental health and the things that are happening in our bodies and the things that are happening in our brains and how it all relates and affects our, our mental health and well-being and, and all sorts of things like that. And that's exactly the conversation I had on this episode. Um, we talk about stress. We talk about how that kind of affects, I guess, the, the biology of, of us and, and how it affects not only our brains, our gut, but like almost down to our cells and, and DNA and, and all the things that kind of contribute to stress, like conflict, like, like diet, exercise, all these different things. And, and we go through her research and her science and talk about things like intergenerational trauma, which is a super uh, fascinating conversation in of itself. And I just, I love conversations like these because it just, it, it's really important, especially for myself as a mental health advocate and, and somebody who speaks openly about mental health, I think it's critical that I also have some sort of understanding of, of some of the science that happens. And it just, some of it just truly blows my mind. And this conversation blew my mind. So I, I really think you're going to get a lot out of it because my guest was absolutely fantastic. She is a PhD candidate at the Integrated Program of Neuroscience at McGill University. Uh, she studies a whole bunch of awesome things like I talked about. She's also uh, into academic well-being um, and all that sorts of stuff. Uh, what else? Did she, you know, uh, mental health advocate in of herself. And she's just truly amazing. Really love talking to her. Please give it up for my guest, Kasia Shishkovich. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to the Life in It's been a while uh, after telling so many mental stories uh, and about illness and all these things that happen. Um, it's been a while since we got into the science of it. We got to the real, you know, the bottom of what's actually happening with us. Uh, and I'm, I'm pleased to be joined today by Kasia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And a shout out to a mutual friend, Anna, who I'm sure will be listening. Um, mutual friends. Uh, do you go to school with her? Do you study with her? Like, What's the connection there? Kind of is the answer. Um, we did our undergrad at the same school. We did our undergrad at Carleton, but we kind of missed each other during our undergrad because I think she was a hero behind me. Um, and I'm actually at school at McGill now, and she's still at Carleton, but we work with the same senior researcher. So now we're kind of collaborating on a lot of projects, but um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, before we get into, I guess, what you study and some of the, the interesting sciencey tidbits that I always love to dissect, because one thing about me, um, I love learning about science, but mm -hmm. my 
my grasp. Uh, I got like a sixties in high school science. Like it just, and that's fine. Sometimes it does not click in my brain how it all works, but I love learning about it and I love hearing about it. Um, how, you know, how has been the last year, you know, trying to research the stuff in like a, a massive global crisis. I mean, probably couldn't be easy. Getting your PhD is not easy in the best of times. So how, like, how are you? How has it been? Stressful. Yeah. <laughs> Stressful is the number one word. Um, well, I mean, the pandemic, especially, so I'm in Montreal and we were hit with a lot of different restrictions mm. and a lot of stuff changing all the time. Um, so just to give you a little, little timeline, I had a big experiment going in February where all my sample collection was going to be at the end of March for a big experiment to complete another sample, uh, like one of the chapters of my thesis. Obviously, mid-March, everything shut down. My research was not essential. So I had to cancel a few months worth of work and about $6,000 worth of experiments and was suddenly stuck at home. And so I work at a hospital. So things were like very, very closed until about July. And I was kind of trying to do other stuff. And then the other sort of big hitter at once I started to get things back on track in the fall was that my supervisor suddenly passed away. So that was also a major stressor. Um, so that, that was like a really, really ho- horrific thing to happen, obviously for him and his family. And then for me, it was this kind of like additional destabilizing about six months into the, into the pandemic. So between those two things, it's been a lot of just like scrambling, trying to figure out how to finish my degree, how to study things, how to work with the data I have rather than all the data I wanted to have. Uh, Cause I'm basically timing out of my degree right now. So I technically could stay for several years, but my scholarship is ending, meaning that I need to leave. So I need to graduate. So I'm actually on the tail end. I'm trying to submit my thesis in a few weeks and hopefully defend in October or so. So very, very stressful time in my life. Right. So, well, I appreciate you taking a little bit of time to come chat. Um, I have never wrote a thesis, but from the things that I've heard uh, for a doctoral thesis, um, it's not necessarily something that people come too easily or naturally. <laughs> no. So, um, hopefully this can be a nice break, maybe, you know, a nice kind of clear thought uh, process. I really, really need that. Actually, I've written <laughs> about 8,000 words in the last three days. So I was like, you know what? It'd be nice to talk to a human. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, well, I'm always interested because there's there's always one thing when when I'm talking to community advocates and and leaders who are kind of in this space because we've all pretty much been thrust into this advocacy role through lived and personal experience. And I know with a lot of researchers, uh, researchers uh, in in terms of, I guess, with mental health, especially that, you know, there is a lot of personal connection um, with it, but, you know, what made you fall into this line of study? What made it interesting to you to pursue it, especially in like an academic PhD, you know, level? That's a really, really good question. Um, Well, I mean, when I was young, I was convinced I wanted to be a writer Mm. and I was really good at math. So those were like my two things. I was really good at English. I was really good at math. I was terrible at biology, like terrible beyond compare, like even in high school biology, like I was very much one of the like top achieving smart kids, but bio and chemistry and physics were like, no, no, I can do math. I can do calculus. No problem. I don't understand what a cell is. 
Uh, but around that time, one of my close family members had had uh, lived with like very severe mental illness for about six years already. And I saw a lot of the stigma within our household and our immediate community. And just like, so we were talking just before the show that I'm Polish and I'm, I was born here, but my uh, parents and my older brother immigrated mm. from Poland um, kind of as a consequence of the communist regime. Like they essentially mm. came to Canada as refugees and they held on a lot to a lot of conservative values and a lot of um sort of old country ways of looking at things. So then when mental illness cropped up in our family, as well as in other parts of the Polish community, I've seen quite a lot of it. It was really not talked about. So I kind of had to do my own research. Um, And the more I started to do my own research, the more I was like, oh, this is not just like a random thing that's happening to us or this random thing that's happening to this other person that I know this is like there is a biological basis for this there's an explanation and it started to make a lot of sense and it was a really big way for me to cope when I was around 15 16 Mm. um at the time definitely a lot of the stressor and a lot of the intergenerational trauma was also having effects on me I struggled a lot with depression I struggled a lot with self-harm around that time and it was another just kind of way of being like oh okay this isn't just me this isn't just this environment it's actually something that is kind of universal has a real cause and could be interesting so I really latched on to this idea of neuroscience and biological basis of behavior so instead of being a mathematician as everyone expected me to be I ended up going into the biological sciences and I was like okay I don't know what I'm doing but I think this is really interesting and now that I experienced these struggles over the last few years and saw a close family member struggling, it's like, okay, I think I need to do this. And yeah, I'm very happy that I did. Mm. So when you say, you said, sorry, what was it? Neuroscience and biological basis of behavior. So, so yeah, what is that kind of, so that just means that things that are happening biologically. So either in our brain or in our bodies, um, I say in our body is because I study gut bacteria and those are not in our brain, they're in our gut. Um, so just how our biology can influence how we think, how we act, how we feel about things. And that's something I'm interested in. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of like, I think the grandest questions we have, you know, how much is, how much is the things that happen to us, uh, especially later, is it nature versus nurture, right? Like what is the things that happen to us, which, or what, you know, or do they, maybe they combine, like they, they mess you up. So, I mean, that's a huge question for me Absolutely. to like, sit, you, sit you here and, and make you answer. But I guess from your research, from your experience, where does it start? And let's, let's talk mental illness specifically, because there's a whole bunch of different ways, but when you're looking at specifically, maybe early life stress, I guess, things that happen early on and how that might play a role. How much, you know, does it play with nature versus nurture? Is it a lot of both? It's absolutely a lot of both. I mean, in the field, I've heard a lot of people use the analogy that genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. Mm. So you can have a certain genetic predisposition 
and especially in the like context of mental health and psychiatry, a genetic predisposition usually doesn't mean just like one gene is off. It's usually a family of genes that may or may not be working together and having, you know, maybe 60% of them tend towards like a risk factor. Maybe that makes you more likely, but just because you have one or two of the genes doesn't necessarily increase your likelihood. Like we haven't found the genes of mental illness and I don't think those exist. Mm. Um, but you can have kind of a collection of genetic predispositions that if you have a very kind of um, environment full of resilience factors, so a secure early life environment with secure caregiver attachments and relatively low to moderate levels of stress. So you still learned how to cope with stress later in life, but aren't severely traumatized or anything like that, that's kind of like, even if you have some bad genes, quote unquote, you'll still be fine. And, but if you have some bad genes and then some bad experiences that overwhelm your system in a way that you can't cope, that can really kind of program our bodies to thinking, okay, the world is dangerous and I need to act as if the world was dangerous. So I need to be always hypervigilant, always kind of on my guard in this kind of like state of anxiety and panic and that's really heavy on our bodies and our bodies can get exhaustion, uh, exhausted when that happens. So that leads to depression, for example, it's very mm-hmm. much an oversimplification, mm-hmm. but that's kind of the idea. So it's like, you might have the genes that make you even more vulnerable, but you don't have to have the genes in order to be vulnerable to the effects of early life stress, for example, and you could have bad genes and not sort of developmental illness. So it's really the combination of the two, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of those things that I think especially getting more involved in the the mental health community but more specifically this podcast where I've heard just countless stories of things that have happened to people um, as a as a child or you know as a a early teen whether it's you know sexual abuse physical abuse um, emotional spiritual all that stuff and just how they describe how what happened to them at, at that age has stayed with them even now uh, and as an adult and still affects yeah. them. And it's really just, it's like opened my eyes completely. Like, I think everybody knows now. I mean, not, I shouldn't say everybody, not everybody pays attention, but people that, in these circles. <laughs> yeah. But I think even as like a general basis knowledge that we have a very general understanding that what happens to us as a kid really affects who we become as an, yeah. as an adult. But to the extent of mental illness and, and things like trauma and, and you know, PTSD, uh, all these different, even hearing stories about people developing uh, dissociative identity disorder or borderline personality disorder as a result of these things, it's actually quite scary and makes me really reevaluate the family and parental role. Like as before, I was like, oh, you're bad. Maybe you shouldn't have kids. But now it's like, Oh, like, okay. Like maybe it's really not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause when we think about like the biology of what's going on in early life, that's really when we're learning both like from an emotional cognitive standpoint, but also our bodies are learning, <clears throat> excuse me, our bodies are learning. What is the environment that we were born in? What is this environment actually like? And we're adapting accordingly. So as our brain is maturing and as the rest of our body is maturing, our brain is learning, do I have to be constantly on guard to protect myself? Or are there people in my life who will protect me when I feel vulnerable, for example? You know, and those things are both cognitive, but they also 
show up in our neurobiology, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely. It's like early life experiences matter a lot for like teaching a kid properly. And I'm a big kind of proponent for this idea of emotional and mental health education for young families mm-hmm. and even kind of bring like emotional education tools into like preschools and early curriculums, just like teaching kids how to handle difficult emotions, how to handle stressors, all these kinds of things. Yeah. I I'm totally with you. That's like where my main focus is, I guess, in my own like speaking and advocacy Mm. journey that especially young men, just, I just remember going back to, and I I mean, I think you were there when I I gave the talk to the brain. um, Yeah. At the conference. Yeah. You know, nothing, nothing bad had happened to me. Um, I've never really had anything bad happened to me, but yet I still mm-hmm. developed depression and anxiety. And I just remember going back to when I was 14, 15, 16, and how impressionable I was with certain, you know, you, you were mentioning that you started to do research on, on mental health and neuroscience and all this different stuff where I was like reading like communist manifestos and like, and, you know, anti-establishment pieces and like the uh, heretic spot like all this just really dark stuff that yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know teenagers kind of get into I mean I think that, I think that's edgy. normal as a teenager yeah but uh, you know just I mean that could have went sideways really fast yes um, you know and it just it just makes me think so you know the importance of giving kids and young people the tools to to battle these types of things is just so important I, like, I have questions, but I want to make sure that I'm asking things in your area of expertise. So when sure. <laughs> we talk about like what you're studying specifically, because I know you said gut bacteria, you kind of sent me a nice little note, but like, what, like, what is your main area of focus in research? What is my main? That's a really good question. Cause I'm like short-term, long-term, cause right. I've been so, in research yeah, for about eight years now okay. and my PhD for the last five years. So my PhD specifically is on early life stress and how that affects the development of the body, the brain and behavior. So um, I mentioned in my email, I use an animal model for this. So I actually study mice and I see, okay, how are they behaving when they're adults? Do they socialize? Do they show more anxiety? Do they still want to seek out pleasurable things? you know, you can't ask a mouse how it feels, but you can kind of get a sense if a mouse is depressed, if it stops searching out like um, food that tastes really good, or if it starts, stops trying to make new friends with other mice, those kinds of things. And the other kind of area I look at is, um, okay, well, what's going on in their gut? What bacteria are there? How are these bacteria acting? Bacteria actually send signals to the host. So either to the mouse or to us and can kind of modify what's going on in our bodies. So I try to figure out what are these signals? Are they being sent to our immune system? Are they being sent to our brain? Are they being sent to our hormones? And what sort of effects are those having? Are these effects associated with some of these behavioral changes we see? Mm. So that's like specifically what my PhD is. Okay. Um, And I have a lot of experience also in kind of adult stress. That's where I started, adult stress and changes on immune system and gut bacteria. Um, so I worked with something called social defeat, which is where you basically have two mice fight it out to see who's going to be dominant. And this is very stressful for both of them, mm. as you can imagine. 
Um, and it's a, it's a really cool model because in this one, only some mice will develop depressive like behaviors. So mice don't get depression. So we don't say mice develop depression. We say they develop depressive like behaviors and in social defeat, only about like 60% of them will. And 40% of them seem to kind of be resilient. They're kind of like, yeah, I can shake that off. doesn't matter that I lost this fight. Everything's fine. And it's a really, really cool model to look at exactly that kind of like susceptibility that, you know, bad stuff can happen to us or not, or the stuff that happens to us might have a really strong influence on someone and not that big of an influence on someone else. What are the factors behind that? Yeah. And isn't that the golden question? (laughs) 100%. (laughs) We're all, we're all wondering. So I I want to, we're, I'll start with the adult uh, and then we'll get into some of that early life stuff because we've already touched a little bit on early life. Yeah, sure. Before I do, when we're talking gut bacteria, it's been a while since I've chatted about this with Anna and (laughs) and some other people like nutritionists, but Mm -hmm. it is definitely becoming more well-known that, I mean, they call our gut the second brain and that basically we're like this you know, giant microbe that just is like control. Like maybe we are a simulation of the bacteria. Like I've just funny little things like that. Right. But (laughs) so when we're talking gut bacteria for people who might not be familiar or at least not touched up on it, what makes that so important to, I mean, essentially being human, but our mental health or overall well-being. Yeah. So that's an interesting question. I'm going to take a couple of different routes to get at the answer to to that. So one of them is that we know that we actually need bacteria for our biological systems to develop properly. So one thing that other scientists have done is developed mice that didn't have any gut bacteria and took a look at what goes on in these guys. So they're called germ-free animals. And these germ-free mice don't develop a good immune system at all act really wonky. They both overreact and underreact to a bunch of situations and in general just have a lot of changes in various signals that we can measure in the brain to look at maturation of the brain and sort of what we're expecting. So these studies were done nearly 20 years ago now and really gave us a sense of, okay, we need bacteria to develop properly. We don't know why, we don't know which bacteria, or at least at the time we didn't, but we knew that they were important. And then as we kind of started looking at it a little more with like major sequencing projects of sequencing, just being like trying to figure out what are all the bacteria that are in our body. um, As we kind of developed that a little more, we realized, okay, there's a lot of different guys in here. And there's this whole like ecosystem, this whole kind of like almost a rainforest type situation of plenty of little critters that actually there's more bacteria than we have cells and there's more genes expressed by these bacteria than our own genes. And the thing you need to understand about genes is they tell the bacteria or the cell what to do. So if bacteria are expressing a particular gene, so if they have it and activate it, they're going to make something. And the stuff that they make is just kind of floating around in our gut. And those things can be neurotransmitters, they can be nutrient byproducts, they can be um, factors that stimulate our immune system. So depending on what bacteria are in our gut, they're going to make different things. And those different signals are going to reach us. They're going to reach us through our gut that can go into our bloodstream, which can affect the rest of our body and can even reach our brain. 
So I'm not sure if that answered the question completely, but I think that kind of gave you a sense. Yeah, that it, I mean, it basically almost controls us and what happens to us in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. It controls us just in the sense that like, if we don't, if we don't have them, like we are, we are not healthy. We are not okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) at all. So when it comes to, I guess when, so let's move into that discussion about adults because, you know, it's been said, I think a lot of us have, have seen the quote that, you know, stress is like, is it the silent killer? Camera. Now I can't even remember yeah. misquoting things, but That's that okay. stress is like going to be like one of the major killers, especially as we develop into these. I mean, we already have, but these office roles, we're sitting in chairs all day. We're not moving as frequently. We're eating more and more processed foods. And we're just, we're sitting there stressed all the time because we're not sleeping. We're not like we're on our phones. Tons of that's like a whole podcast in itself. Like, yes, what's stressing us out, basically. <laughs> uh, not to mention everything, the world and the pandemic. everything about <laughs> how we're currently set up is exactly bad for us. <laughs> so, does stress like is it is it destroying our our gut bacteria, and in turn, that's kind of you know making things a whole lot worse. It's a chicken and egg situation. Mm. Um, destroying is a little bit of a like heavy term, but it is changing things. So one way to think about stress, like kind of to get us back into the beginning is like what actually happens when we're stressed first, we have to kind of perceive it in some way. We won't necessarily like say, Oh, I'm stressed right now, but we might say like, uh, you know, this, this thing is horrible, or I don't want to be here, or I'm not having fun, whatever. We kind of have this Mm. appraisal of the stressful situation. And that is a process in our brain that will stimulate the release of signals that go actually through our whole body all the way down to our adrenal glands, which is um, a hormonal secretor that actually sits on top of our kidneys. And that's what secretes cortisol. So when we're talking about the stress response, we're not just talking about a response in our brain. We're talking about the secretion of cortisol in our whole body. Mm. And the problem is that cortisol is actually really good. If you're in an acute stress situation, you need to run away from something, you know, it's going to send all the blood to our legs and to our arms so we can fight. It's not going to make sure we don't waste time on doing useless things like digesting or thinking. We just need to be able to fight. And once we have a lot of cortisol, eventually other receptors in our brain will say, okay, there's enough there. We don't need to make any more. But if we keep getting stressed and we keep experiencing more cortisol, those receptors will become less and less sensitive. So if before in the same situation, they would have said, okay, we don't need to be stressed anymore. Everything's fine. We've handled it. That response now won't stop because we've kind of like burned out the system. Mm. Right. So that's sort of the first idea behind kind of chronic stress and how that messes with our body. And then the problem is that cortisol is in our whole body and it acts on a ton of different processes, one of which is the immune system. So you can probably imagine, or you can probably think back to a time in your life that you were super, super stressed. And then you got sick right after, like, you know, you have to write an exam or whatever you're studying for five, six days. And then for two days, you're like really sick, have some dumb cold or stomach bug or whatever. And that's literally just because of this like constant flow of cortisol that messes with our kind of innate immune system and makes us more susceptible to infection. And depending on how that's behaving, that's going to signal to our bacteria and make our intestinal environment more or less kind of hospitable to bacteria. 
So they might, you know, if we're constantly inflamed, some of our quote unquote good bacteria might be like, eh, I can't live here anymore. This house is horrible. I'm going to head out. And our quote unquote bad bacteria might be like, Ooh, inflammation. I love inflammation. That's what I do. And they'll kind of take over. So we don't destroy our microbiome quote unquote, but we change the balance of the kinds of signals that are coming out. So then these guys will generate more inflammation and that'll send more put more pressure on our immune system, which can put more pressure on our stress system. And you get into this like vicious chicken and the egg cycle. Right. And then what doesn't help is if we start eating terrible food, that's the food that we're feeding our microbes and our quote unquote bad microbes. They love processed food. They love sugars. They love fats, not a huge fan of fiber. The good guys want some fiber. Um, so again, we're kind of shifting that balance of what bacteria are there and what sort of signals will be sent. Uh. Yeah. So complicated, but so interesting. It's just like everything's related, which is yeah. a problem. Nothing's everything's a coincidence. Related. No, no, not at all. So I know it's been a couple of years since you've specifically with adults in stress, but what were some of the things that you were like specifically trying to take a look at and maybe answer? Um, so when I was doing this work a couple of years ago, we were still didn't know a lot about whether stress in adulthood actually changed the gut bacteria, like all of this was sort of like a framework and this like idea that we had, and maybe there was a little bit of evidence behind it, but we weren't actually sure. So um, I was looking at this model that I told you about called social defeat, where some mice after kind of fighting it out to see who's dominant will get really, really depressed because they keep losing. We sort of rig the game a little to make sure that they keep losing. And they kind of just give up. They're like, I don't want to make any more mouse friends. I don't want to eat nice food. I'm over it. Life sucks. And about 40% of them are like, whatever. I can, I lost a few times. Doesn't matter. I can do it again. And the supervisor I was working with, who is now, I'm also still working with and is Anna's PhD supervisor, um, Dr. Oda, who's at Ottawa U now, she was really interested in seeing whether their bacteria were different. So one, whether just stressing them on its own, whether that changed their bacteria. And then if any factors within those bacteria changed, whether they were susceptible or resilient to the effects of the stressor. So that's really kind of what we looked at. And we published a paper, I want to say in 2017, um, just kind of showing exactly that. We didn't see a lot of differences in the bacteria between the guys that were really susceptible and the guys that were resilient, but we saw these major, major shifts associated with the stress itself. And that was one of the first papers kind of showing that. And then what was unique about what we did is we also looked at whether those shifts were associated in changes in the immune system. Cause we were thinking, okay, we'll probably have more inflammation in these guys. And that's exactly what we saw is that some bacteria really seem to associate with inflammatory signals in the brain of these mice. So brain inflammation, not good. Mm. You don't want that. But brain inflammation does happen on a kind of a low level, low grade level in stressful situations. And it seems to be one of the kind of ways that it maintains the stress response. And we saw that the changes in bacteria actually associated with those changes in the brain. And it's like, okay, this this looks like it's real. It looks like it's kind of significant and interesting that any sort of stress-related change might actually be working with the rest of the body and sort of messing some stuff up. Mm. Yeah. 
so this isn't a science podcast, so I will allow you to speculate and offer your own maybe thoughts without it being factually correct um, necessarily. <laughs> it may be the right. answer. I don't know. But That's what I'm okay. curious is, is when we're taking that model of the mice and we're, we're yeah. going to start applying it to humans, you know, we think about things like, you know, either homelessness, poverty, um, basically just getting racism, the shit under the stick of life yeah. and society all the time, where basically you, you're defeated. And then we think about the ultra billionaires, the people who are ultra successful, the rich kids who are just, you know, they've never really, um, really had any struggle. So, I mean, again, I, like, I don't know if the research is there, but, you know, just uh, again, allowing you to speculate, I just want to make I'll sure that's clear with people <laughs> that, you know, in a way, does it become like a, a cyclical pattern where just people who are like constantly losing might like just be generally I guess like you could say unhealthy because they're not eating the right foods they don't have the same opportunities but just I guess when it comes to like the gut microbiome and would winning would all of a sudden good fortune and things happening change that level of you know gut bacteria making them happier better less like all that stuff right like is there I'll actually go off on that kind of some of this sure. question more as like a thought, but I'm no, just, I I'm like just curious. So winning isn't necessarily not stressful. Mm. Okay. Um, that's kind of a really interesting thing when we look at research. And I also see this in my cats. So I have two cats and I think I'll start with this example because you'll see my point in a second. One of them has been a cat in my life for four years. And the other one we introduced her two years ago. And the newer one is constantly being bullied by the older one. They're getting a lot better now. They're more in this like, you know, tiny sibling relationship that they're fighting and still the one that's been there longer needs to constantly be proving she's dominant. So she's the one that's stressed out more. She's way more stressed out than the one that's constantly being defeated because she keeps having to prove that she is on top and that she is staying on top. And this is extremely stressful for her. And actually, when we look at mice, um, there's another really cool model we can use um, because mice also form this kind of like social hierarchy. If there's maybe four or five of them living together, one will be kind of dominant. That one will have the highest uh, stress signals and the most kind of lower down guy, as long as all his needs are met, it's kind of like, oh, you know, this is fine. Like, I know, I know what's going on in my life. I don't have to fight for more. I've got what I need. So to think about that, it's like, if you're constantly down on your luck and already not in a good situation, and then suddenly you have this really great fortune that actually brings a lot of stress into it. Cause it's like, I need to hang on to it. I need to make sure that I don't go back there. I, you know, all these kinds of yeah. thought processes. So I'm not talking about the ultra rich because I yeah. think that's a completely sort of different thing, but this idea of like that having a good thing happen in your life won't necessarily take away a lot of stress. You know what I mean? Yeah. It will definitely improve the quality of your life if you're struggling for to get your basic needs met. Like, you know. It's almost like this this idea, um, and it happens in my life a lot. Uh, and just even growing up with my parents, that when something good happens, we're like, okay, now what's gonna go wrong? And then yep. we're stressed and worried about, okay, like when's my car gonna break down? When's yep. the CRA gonna call? Um, and it actually makes me think of 
that idea of being on the top is stressful. I mean, using it as a more um, recent real life example, uh, Simone Biles, who, who was struggling the yeah. Olympics as we record this, who had to pull out uh, and you think about things like pressure and you think of people's expectations and having the weight of, you know, millions of people kind of like on you at all times and th- this need to have to be perceived as perfect you know, you're right. Like when you said it, I didn't really think of it before when you said, it, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Whereas like me, like I'm not really stressed, but like, I don't really have, like I get stressed, but you know, as long as everything's you, that idea of everything's being kind of met, like, you know, it, the stress isn't there that I constantly need to perform and constantly need to be this thing that I might not want to be. Yeah. I think there's this uh, really cool study that looked at like happiness level and related to income. And it's like happiness goes up with income only to about 70,000. Cause at about 70,000 a year, you're like pretty comfortable. You can like afford your house. You have financial security. You can afford all your extra healthcare expenses, go on vacation, whatever. So all your basic needs are met. And then past that, it's kind of like, it doesn't actually matter. And I think when we're talking about like, being down on your luck and having privilege, we're kind of talking about a similar thing mm-hmm. that like you, once all your basic needs are met, being even more successful doesn't actually bring more happiness. It can actually bring a lot more stress. This is a little bit off topic, but reminds me a lot about how um, one thing that really shocked me in graduate school is how many graduate students, especially like science researchers struggle with their mental health. Mm. Like it is so, so striking. Some reports are like up to 60% of grad students in North America, like meet DSM criteria for either a mood or anxiety disorder. What is the DSM? DSM uh, being the diagnostical and statistical manual for diagnosing a mental illness. So it's like the list of things to be like, if you have five of these seven, you probably have depression. Okay. And over half of grad students meet that because there are people who've been high achieving their whole life, been doing great in school their whole life and are now tossed in this like high performance, high pressure system. And it's actually very, very shocking. And yeah. So this kind of is something that really, really struck me a few years ago. Yeah. I think we could have a a large conversation as well on Mm. just student mental health and well-being. Yes. You know, just how much, Again, like there's just, there's so much in this world we have to worry about. I mean, people who are especially going into school now are surrounded constantly by information and social media, like it just bombarded with information and most of it not good because yes. uh, the world is <laughs> lovely, but it's also not good. It's um, also on fire. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. We have <laughs> a lot of genuine concerns about a lot of different things that are happening. And now, now you also have to devote your life and sacrifice a lot of well-being, whether it be sleep, whether it be healthy eating, you're probably away from your parents for the first time. Um, just, you know, you're navigating sex and relationships and alcohol and drugs and all these different things that happen in university yeah. life that seems to be part of the culture. Okay, it's, <laughs> it's a hard time. Um, it's, it's a very it's hard easy. time. <laughs> I mean, young adulthood in general is a very hard time. And it's like, we know that most mental health conditions are diagnosed like before the yeah. age of 25 because it's kind of they're emerging as we go into puberty and enter that period of young adulthood and it's not just from a biological standpoint it's also from a social standpoint it's mm-hmm. like 
when things really majorly change for us. And that transition can be very stressful and very difficult. Again, even if it's a good transition, even if it's like you got a great scholarship into a great school, everything's set up, that can still be incredibly stressful. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So when it comes to adults, because I think mm-hmm. everyone wants to know, okay, like, what can I do then? Life is stressful. <laughs> it's going to get bad. Um, what can I do? And I know, I mean, you do some of this in, in, you know, I know you mentioned with kids, but talking about, you know, emotional uh, health and, and mental health and stuff like that, you know, when you're talking about things like taking care of your, your, your biome, you know, your, your yeah, guts yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, what sorts of things can people do to at least give themselves better odds of success uh, with dealing with stress and dealing with these changes that might be happening to them? Yeah. So, I mean, this is less of a biome centric answer and more of just like a holistic answer, because that's the thing is our mental health depends on a ton of different factors. It depends Mm -hmm. on our biology, but it also depends on our social group. It depends on our lifestyle and all these kinds of things. So it's like the solutions for sort of maintaining optimal mental health are also kind of multifaceted. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you've definitely heard a lot of the advice before, and it's kind of frustrating advice to be like, sleep well, eat well, exercise. And it's like, great. If you're struggling with your mental health, those are the things you cannot do. Mm -hmm. Like those are specifically the things you cannot do. Right. Um, And similarly, it's like, get a lot of social support, talk to people about it, you know, go to therapy if that's accessible for you, try courses of medication if that's accessible to you. Again, all of these kinds of things are not necessarily within our reach. So it's really that idea of trying to find the combination that's the most kind of readily available and readily I guess like that, that's the easiest for you to achieve. So maybe, right. you know, you, you can't cook good food, but you're able to maintain a decent sleep schedule. I personally can't. Um, I went to bed at four in the morning last night because oh that's who I am as a person, um, you know, or maybe you're not, or maybe you're like me and you can't maintain a very good sleep schedule, but you're pretty good at talking to people about what it is that's going on in your life and trying to kind of crowdsource advice and crowdsource some social support and figure out who it is in your life that leaves you feeling more hopeful about the future and feeling more self-reliant and equipped to deal with difficult things. So all of that is more like a stress mitigation strategy, but it will overall improve your Mm -hmm. mental health because it'll kind of just make you feel like you can actually handle things. Yeah. Well, then here's a harder question. I love I don't hard know questions. If, yeah. I mean, it's more of a opinion rather than a fact. Maybe there's some facts. How do we start reaching the people that can't meet those needs? Um, it's one of the questions that I, I always ask. I ask when I'm talking about workplace mm-hmm. mental health, when I'm talking to other advocates. It's like, how do you reach the people who need help, but one might not want to get help? to might know they need help, but like they can't tons of factors on why that might be, but like, what can we do to like give everybody the help that they need? Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's a really difficult question because yeah. it's, uh, I mean, immediately where my brain went into is like, are we talking intervention or are we talking prevention? I think right? ideally everything would be, Per, no, like being proactive so yeah making sure we never get to the point where we're like you know drastic 
things need to to happen, right? Our whole society is based on, you know, just reacting. Oh my God, they're mm. struggling. Let's fix them then. Okay, exactly. you didn't die. You're back on your back on your horse. Let's go. Exactly. Um, we're not set up to give people the tools yeah. in order to never reach the point of which <laughs> exactly. they come into a crisis. Exactly. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of why that's what came to mind because, you know, crisis intervention for people who don't necessarily like seek it out is really, really difficult. I mean, one of the things that we can do is for those who do end up in the emergency department or at their GPs or at a crisis line is to kind of have a more, you know, holistic intervention to also assess, okay, well, like, how is your, how is your lifestyle? How is your life? What are your, you know, stressors? What can actually, what can you get help with? Like, oh, we have an employment program so you can quit your absolutely horrible job where you're being screamed at three times a week and get some, you know, somewhere better. Or, oh, we have this short-term therapy program that uh, teaches emotional regulation techniques that might help you stop having these extreme highs and extreme lows, or at mm. least learn to cope with them. Or we have a cooking class program, you know, all these kinds of things. So this idea of like a holistic approach um, and everything I kind of said, I think is something that can be Im- implemented preventatively in youth as well. Cause I think like kids are really interested in these kinds of things. Like I go to speak in high schools quite a lot and they get really, really curious about like, okay, well, how can I feel less stressed? How can I manage this better? Um, also just like information in general, being able to like pick up on warning signs that you're not doing well and all these kinds of things. Like kids don't realize that it's not something that's wrong with them, that it's not their fault and all these kinds of things or they don't realize that really shouldn't be drinking at age 14 because that will very much mess with your neurodevelopment. Mm. Your brain's going to get wired in a kind of a different way and all these kinds of things. So Oops. I guess what I'm trying to get at is just a very like holistic multi-pronged mm-hmm. approach with as much education as possible. What does that look like practically? Yeah. I mean, it's what we're all searching for really. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like major, major policy changes, Yeah, you know, and how do we get there? I wish I knew. I wish mm-hmm. I had a good answer for that. Um, I, when, before I get to the kid question, I did want to mm. ask because you do, um, you know, you do some presentations and workshops on supporting people in crisis. Yes. And I think one of the things I've always kind of wanted to ask someone in this field, because it's even something I struggle with sometimes But when someone reaches out to you in crisis, someone's like, Ryan, you know, I might take my life or I'm really, I'm really struggling. You know, that I think is one of the most important tools any of us can learn at this point of time, especially where we are in the world and moving forward. So what are some advice that you could give people that if someone were to reach out in a crisis, what could you do to you know, have an optimum outcome instead of the, the easy answer of saying, we'll go get some help. Yeah. Um, one of the first kind of basic things that I teach, and I think it's one of the main things taught at like crisis lines and stuff as well, is you want to assess like risk level and safety. So, because the thing is that, you know, emotional intensity and emotional struggles are very, very important, very real, Mm -hmm. but it's also important to know, like, is this person 
also a danger to themselves imminently, because that's kind of the decision. Do you go to a hospital or do you not go to a hospital? Right. So assessing safety is largely kind of asking the person, okay, well, if you're thinking, are you thinking about suicide is one thing to ask. So there's a myth sometimes that comes up that asking about suicide might give the person an idea. That's absolutely not true. It's absolutely, absolutely not true. Like there's no data behind that. It literally opens up a conversation, you know, and that conversation could go in a lot of different ways. It could go like the person eventually saying, yeah, I am. And, you know, we start talking Mm -hmm. or they say, no, why would you ever say that? They might get mad, but it still kind of prompts them to think, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I am really struggling or they might say no, but thank you for asking. Like you can get a whole kind of range of responses, but it gets the conversation going. And then if the answer is yes, it's worth asking, okay, well, do you have a plan? Because the presence of a plan is extremely dangerous. So if someone's telling you, this is when I'm going to do it, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how this is all going to plan out. That is an emergency situation. Mm. That is very much, uh, okay, well, let's go to the emergency room together right now because you need help. You are currently not able to keep yourself safe. And that's very different from someone who's saying that I'm having passive suicidal thoughts. Like I keep thinking it'd be better for everyone if I was dead and all these kinds of things. But if they don't have a plan and if they don't have a history of past attempts, and if they have a lot of kind of resources to cope, this is someone who largely needs emotional support and someone to listen to them. So sort of understanding where the person in crisis is falling on that continuum is kind of the first step. And most people will fall more so into that space of, I need someone to listen to me. I need someone to help me and support me and have an actual conversation with me rather than the hospital situation. Mm. And it's actually very traumatic for someone who is not at immediate risk for themselves to go through the hospital system Mm. because um, you're based in Ottawa now, right? Mm -hmm. So like Ottawa doesn't have a psychiatric emergency. It doesn't have a psychiatric hospital, but it doesn't have an emergency room. You have to go through mainstream emergency, which means that if you show up with a psychiatric emergency, that's not imminent. You'll basically be stuck waiting in the emergency room for 15 hours. Six psychiatrist who's like, cool. Do you have a doctor? Yes. Okay. Bye. Thanks for coming. Mm. Or no, you don't. Okay. I'll refer you. Um, here in Montreal, we have a really great emergency room at the hospital I work at, at the Douglas that they do actually kind of sort of, um, speed you into the system, assign you a social worker and a psychiatrist and all these kinds of things. But if that's not immediately what you need, it's not kind of the right approach. So, Again, in the majority of cases, what people actually need is to just kind of be listened to and as non-judgmentally as possible. So a lot of the workshops I teach are around this idea of active listening, which is not just kind of passively hearing, but actually responding, empathizing, and not judging. So not asking a lot of why questions, not saying, oh, but you know, you should be happy. These are all the great things in your life, or here's all the good things for that you have to live for and all these kinds of things, but instead a lot of statements of, I understand why this is difficult. You know, you really sound like you're struggling. Um, and then one last thing, this is kind of like my favorite trick. <laughs> I say trick. I use this with my friends a lot when they're struggling is to ask, okay, last time you felt like this, what helped? Or last time, last time you felt like this, what did you do? And the reason behind these kinds of questions is that 
the person knows their own situation the best. They know themselves the best. So it's not useful for you to be like, oh, for me, this works. Try that. For me, that works. Try that. It's not useful. It's useful to get them to brainstorm. Okay. Well, for me last time I felt like this, I maybe drunk myself into a stupor. And then you could say, okay, well, was that useful? Mm -hmm. Probably not. (laughs) So you can say, okay, well, what, you know, what other options do you have? Oh, well, you know, I'm thinking uh, maybe I can call my mom and we have a good relationship and be reassured that way or X, Y, Z. If they're having trouble, you can brainstorm with them, but ultimately remember that like the person in distress knows themselves the best and knows their own situations the best. Mm. I rambled a lot because I'm like, no. how do I condense six hours of workshops into a <laughs> five-minute answer? But that's my five-minute answer. <laughs> um, and I think that's incredibly valuable information you shared. So thank you, because it's even stuff that I struggle with. And even your last point there, sometimes we'll be like, oh, why don't you try this? You know, mm. because it helped me. Uh, and it's good. To, I like that idea of them thinking about it more than me just telling them. Yeah. I go outside and go for a walk, you know, like, why don't you do that? And then they'll just, well, no, I don't, I don't want to go for a walk or something. Right. So exactly. All really great. Um, Yeah. Everyone's felt, you know, scared and distressed and sad before in their lives. You know, maybe they're in a situation where it's stronger than it's ever been, but it's still not an unfamiliar feeling. Those are all like normal emotions we experience all the time. So it's like, okay, well, what helped last time you had this kind of emotion Mm -hmm. or that you were in this kind of situation? Yeah, no, very good. So thank you. Um, It's something I wanted to like cover. Um, Before I let you go, though, I do want to talk about the kids stuff because we started there. We'll come full circle. (laughs) And it's what you're studying now, writing your thesis, which I'm keeping from. So I'm trying to help out there. That's Um, totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes, so when it comes, we've we've talked about adult stress now. We talked a little bit about the kids stuff. But when you're going into your research and some of the stuff you've been working on for the last, you know, five years for your PhD in this subject, what were some of like, maybe share some, some tidbits of things that were really interesting that when you learned them or heard about them, you're like, oh, like it just kind of like one of those light bulb moments or really got you excited or really got you scared. Like just some of the, the, the big pieces. I think one of the sort of most salient things when I first started in this field was that sense of like, something can happen that you don't remember that can still completely sort of shape um, how you behave as an adult. So the model that I work with, for instance, um, my early life stress model is a resource scarcity model. So it's basically I induce poverty in mice is kind of the easiest way I can describe it. So instead of mom having all the nesting material that she needs to build a really great home for her, babies, she only has a little bit. And this really, really stresses her out because what happens is she keeps leaving the nest, trying to find more nesting material. She doesn't take as good of a care of her pups because she's so focused on trying to build this better nest. And when I heard about this model, I thought it was really interesting because it's something that we see in society quite a lot, Mm -hmm. especially with either like, um, young families where both parents have to work a lot, or especially in single motherhood where mom's working two, three jobs. And it's not that mom doesn't care about her kids. Of course she does. And she's trying to do the best she can. And it's really not like, a, you know, everything is mom's fault, which is kind of a criticism of this kind of, kind of research that people mm-hmm. give sometimes. And it's like, no, it's not that everything is mom's fault. It's that mom is not supported. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Mom doesn't have adequate resources and she's doing the best she can. And she needs to prioritize her kids or in the case of my mice, her pup's safety. So she prioritizes trying to make sure that the nest is as good as possible, that the home is as good as possible, that there's as much food as possible. But that comes at the consequence of actually spending time with them and actually nurturing them. And that's really shocking to me because in my model, like, um, so mice don't open their eyes in the first kind of week of life. And they also don't have fur. They're basically like uh, the equivalent of a human in its third trimester um, as an embryo. So like, they don't remember anything. They're not really registering this. They're just kind of like these little, like, they look like little kidney beans, Mm -hmm. little naked kidney beans sort of rolling around. And now and again, they're like, oh, mom's here. Mom's gone. Mom's here. Mom's gone. But even several months later, when they're adults, they're still behaving completely differently. And there's still traces of what happened in their biology. So they don't remember this experience at all. And then other mouse models of early life stress, even stress the mom prenatally. And these experiences also have really, really long lasting effects, which is wild because these could be stressors that happen like completely sort of naturally. And again, outside of our control, like, um, at the hospital I work at, there's a research group looking at the effects of the ice storm of 98 mm-hmm. and how that, how mothers who were pregnant at that time, their kids have very specific developmental outcomes that are different from mothers who were pregnant like the year before, because that was such like a stressful time, even though it was only a few days and completely outside of anyone's control. Right. And again, the kids don't remember this, but it's like these things that happened completely sort of quote unquote, randomly when they were tiny are influencing them throughout life. And yeah, I'm really, I'm really interested in this. And this also like intergenerational trauma is something that I've done a little bit of work into and that I have a lot of firsthand experience. in cause it's like my parents experienced the communist regime in Poland. My grandparents experienced world war II and concentration camps. And those are the stories that I was raised on as mm-hmm. well. And it's like, even though I didn't directly experience those, I definitely feel the effects of them cognitively. Mm. And I think we see this in a lot of cultures as well. Mm. Like obviously indigenous people in Canada have this very, very strikingly. And for instance, have really high rates of not only mental illness, but also a lot of physical illness. And again, not necessarily people who experienced residential schools, for example, or anything else, but just being in that community and having that intergenerational trauma is enough kind of predispose you to a lower quality of life and difficult health outcomes and all these kinds of things. So I sort of rambled, but this is like the big picture stuff where Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, you know, these, these things that happen to us that we don't remember that happened even before we were born or even before we were conceived do kind of have effects on our lives. Yeah. I just, I think Mm -hmm. that's wild. It's gotten me really interested in history and yeah. uh, it's scary. Of, like, it's really scary. Because through <laughs> no fault of your own, through nothing, right? We're always taught, you know, controlling your destiny, all these different things. Yeah. Those, those cliches that like motivational, like girl bosses use and stuff like that. <laughs> um, I don't mean to pick on girl bosses, but that this idea of all these things that like we weren't even alive for has this effect on who we become. And, and our future. And I, that's a scary proposition um, because there's not, there's some things you can do to mitigate it, but really at the end yeah. of the day, like you're kind of like just the help you the dealt the hand that you have. Yeah. I wanted to ask about intergen- intergenerational trauma because that is 
when I don't talk about it much on the podcast, but I do have some personal um, family stuff that's going on with that. Um, but I'm curious about the idea because when you first said what you're researching, that was something that immediately came to mind. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about it, is it that biological factor of that, like the stress of the mother prenatally, even maybe before they were pregnant has a, a role, like that stress then can carry on biologically when the baby's yes. born. Yes. Oh, so you have that then plus all the circumstances around that they're traumatized and have mental illness and yeah. And how and they're raising their that. kids and what the kids find out about the culture. So it really all plays into this. It, this idea plays, of inter- in. it plays into the well-being of the child and how they're going to grow up. Yeah. Like, yeah. I assume you've heard about epigenetics as a concept. That sounds like the name, but can you explain it? Yeah, of course. So um, basically we have our own DNA, so our own genes in every single one of our cells, right? And we get about half of it from mom, half of it from dad. And the thing is that all our cells are identical, but not in terms of their genetic code, but they're not all identical clearly in terms of how they act. So our skin Mm -hmm. cell is different from our kidney cell, for example, is different from a brain cell. And that's because there's regulators on our DNA. They're like little bits, little molecules, basically, or molecular tags that tell the cell, okay, make this part of the gene or make that part of the gene. And those are called epigenetic regulators. So epi just means on top. It's basically Mm. signals that go on top of our DNA and tell us, okay, express this, express that, make less of it, make more of that. And that's super important for our development. And what a lot of researchers have found is that stress also changes the way these act. So for instance, when you're really, really stressed, your system will actually tell you, okay, we'll make more of this gene, make more of that gene in this particular brain region. And those tags can become almost permanent if you have a lot of like chronic stress to the point that they can also actually be passed down through gametes. So through sperm and egg in general, most of these tags are removed, like kind of wiped clean, uh, when like the egg is conceived and stuff, almost all of them, but there's a little bit of evidence that some of them are actually passed down. And this is a really big problem, especially in our maternal line, because I don't know if you know this, but when grandma is pregnant with your mother, your mother already has the egg that will become you. So grandma's stress is already going onto that egg that will become you and is also prenatally already affecting mom. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like really, really shocking. Um, so especially through the maternal line, there's a lot of kind of stress that can be carried either prenatally, which is almost like a direct effect because you already exist or this like one generation back. So it wouldn't necessarily like your entire ancestral line, like, would it like, like, could it just continuously kind of like go, I mean, I don't even know the answer, but like, would it go back all the way to like my ancestor in like 1700 or like it's like super it, hypothetically right super hypothetically because it's like the same way that your genes do and it's like okay it gets it gets diluted obviously with every generation and then also depending on what their environment was like what their stressors were like what that kind of happened like that can sort of shift stuff but very hypothetically yeah like we are a product of that 
and like I'm I'm super into like multi-generational historical fiction I started reading a lot of that lately just you know all these kinds of stories of like eight generations that start with you know this horrible thing that happens in the 17th or 18th century and then watching sort of how descendants deal with that Mm. um yeah there's a lot of really really good books kind of exploring this idea and it really gives you this like flavor of especially when we think about like racism and intergenerational trauma within specific communities it's like you know to say oh racism is over and it's like no it's not like these are people who are still experiencing these echoes of what happened 30 years ago, what happened 100 years ago, what happened several hundred years ago. And they're experiencing it not only on a cultural level, but also on a biological level. Yeah. It takes that nature nurture idea. And it's like, oh, yeah, you like when you said at the beginning, you're like, it's both. It's both. It's 100%. It totally opens this idea of that. Like, like, I guess if you don't believe it, like, I mean, can't help you there, but I mean, the science yeah. as you, and it, as it will continuously develop, because I, you know, I have a good feeling that as this, as we continue to learn more about our past and more voices are being shared, the research will follow in these particular areas because we are no longer relying on old white men who might take an interest in it. And we're going to have a diverse yeah. scientific background on it. But like it, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of different things. When you, when you just say it plainly like that, it's like you start like the dots should start connecting. And like you said, with things about racism and, you know, even you go down the list with, with women, um, with all those different communities, whether it be indigenous people, even like you said, your family and, and Poland and the Holocaust, like it just, it, it really starts to put, to put some of the dots together on why, you know, a lot of things, in our society, the way they are, or like, that's why they are. And it's a yeah. really good explanation. Uh, it's not the entire piece of it, no, but it's- No, a of good, course not. It's a really good indicator of like, oh, wow. Okay. So like the odds are like, when we talk about like a conservative value of, you know, like, oh, just work harder and, you know, pick yourself like about by the bootstrap. Like you clearly have people like starting at like the 400 meter line and someone starting like way back. Right. And like, Absolutely. when we just say equality, that's why I always like to say equity now, because yeah. you're starting someone like so much farther back with all the shit that's happened. And it just like, it's not fair. Even if you put them at the exact same spot, no. it's not going to be fair. No, absolutely not. And it's, it's striking that like we see this culturally and then we see it in the biology. Mm. And again, so it's like, you know, giving that advice of like, oh, you know, and just do yoga and make sure you eat well. And it's like, sure, that will work for some people if you're already at the point where that's accessible to you. But when it's not accessible to you, that's not remotely enough and not even remotely possible. You know, so it's, it's kind of this big web of stuff. And like, I really like kind of pulling on different threads of this web, but there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. And there's a lot of work that's being done. Like, there's a ton of teams at Ottawa and Carleton, Ottawa U and Carleton story that are doing like really, really cool research on intergenerational trauma, especially in indigenous communities. Um, there's some work being done at McGill and in some labs that I'm associated with. So like people are taking an interest in this and, you know, we want to understand because the more we understand about what's going on in terms of biology, the more we can say, okay, well, let's try to fix this particular thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe in my field, like, oh, these microbiota, 
seem to be going, okay, let's try to maybe have a diet that will help promote these other microbiota to restore that balance, for example. Because at the end of the day, we want to, I mean, we want to fix it. (laughs) We want to fix it. So in order to fix it, we need to know what is it that's going on. So it's like, you know, when we first started thinking about depression, we were like, oh, dopamine's the problem or serotonin's the problem. So let's give drugs that fix serotonin and dopamine. And it's like, great. 70% of the population doesn't respond to those Mm because that's not the only piece of the puzzle. That's not the only problem. Sure. They play some role, but it's not the only part of the problem. So we need to find out, okay, well, what are the other parts of the problem? And those seem to be not just in our brain, but in the rest of our body as well. Which is a big task on a level of you know, not only the work you're doing, but on an advocacy level, when you're trying to get people to understand true mental illness and mental health, which already carries an incredible amount of stigma and lack of understanding. When you start telling them there's actually this, it's not just unhappy or sad. It's like this huge, like you said, this intricate web of all these different things at playing a role at once in this thing we call life that's like affecting everything. So it's not just as easy as be positive or uh, some of my favorites, you know, like, uh, like, you know, just choose happiness. Exactly. <laughs> just things like that. Now mindset absolutely can play a role. I, yeah. I respect that. And I definitely get that, but like to get people to comprehend how complex these issues are. I mean, that's just like, it's going to be an incredible challenge, especially for the boomers. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I actually love about animal research. Cause like animal research is very difficult and controversial in a lot of circles. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't realize that like the animal research I do, it's not like burning bunnies with shampoo. You know what I mean? It's very much like a regulated humane and very sort of compassionate approach to try and understand very specific problems. And uh, the thing, the thing is with animal research is you can see it so clearly that like mice don't have a positive or negative mindset. Like that's, that's not a thing that's beyond kind of their cognitive capacity, but they can still develop things that look like human depression. Mm. Cause it's not because they have some messed up mindset. It's because something has happened on the biological level and you already see changes. You see them behave more anxiously. You see them behave, um, know, not enjoying things, uh, not wanting to socialize with other mice, all these kinds of things. And I think that gives a lot of validity to mental health. Like that's kind of what got me mm-hmm. into this idea of animal research in general is just like, oh, we're not just experiencing mental health issues because we're humans and have these complex cognitive things and our thoughts go off into horrible places and we should just be able to control them. Like, no, no, this is happening on the level of our, bi- our biology, mm. our brains are behaving in a particular way. Our bodies are behaving in a particular way. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, yeah. that's another one. It's my favorite. Just, just don't think about it. Just don't oh, think about okay. it. Yeah. 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 Just stop worrying. Um, well it, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And I just wanted to make a quick joke about you being the compassionate animal thing. I mean, basically you're just doing what the government does every day with human lives. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I try to be a lot better than that. <laughs> that's uh, that's um, very important to me. <laughs> so before I let you go, where do you see, if I were to give you a crystal ball and say, okay, Cash, yeah. look in the next, you know, five, 10 years of this research, you know, what are you kind of like predicting? Where are you seeing this is going to go? And with this research, with the stuff 
you and your colleagues and other, you know, people in this field are kind of discovering, I mean, I'd say you'd hope for it, but do you anticipate being able to make a better case for better policy choices and changes? That is a big hope. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. That's a big hope. Um, I had a really con- interesting conversation a few days ago, and this is also because I'm currently reading a book on uh, nutritional psychiatry, which is the idea mm. that our food um, influences our mood and our mental health. The book is called Brain Changer by Felice Jacka. I really recommend it. I'm listening to the audiobook and it's read by her. And she's a researcher in Australia who works mm. with us a lot and kind of developed the field of nutritional psychiatry. And while reading this book, I had this conversation about how, you know, really bad food is what's convenient in our culture. Mm. Like if you go into a convenience store, you're absolutely just like, like you can grab your ruffles, you can grab your soda and you're very happy, but it's very difficult to actually have access to kind of more healthy food They're They tend to be more expensive, especially if they're pre-prepared. So I was just thinking in terms of like policy, like actually just having more healthy options conveniently. And so this is completely off the wall, but I I went to Japan two years ago. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that really shocked me in Japan was that there's convenience stores everywhere and you can buy relatively healthy food. Like if you want, you can actually live on convenience store food for like three, four weeks, no problem. Mm. One of the most common snacks, which is for about one Canadian dollar, um, is a rice ball with like a fish filling and held in a little bit of seaweed. That's like extremely good for you. It's a lot of protein, a lot of carb. Like when we were traveling, we were just eating like four or five of those a day. Mm. They're super delicious, really cheap. And I'm like, why don't we have this? Like, I'd love to just be able to like walk into a convenience store and be like, give me a little like bowl of rice with some fish or some tofu and a bit of veggies. I will pay $4 for that rather Mm. than pay $4 for the big bag of chips. Why is that not readily available? And it's like, the more we're stressed, the more we need these convenience meals and the more we're looking for this stuff. And then our options are just bad. They're just objectively bad. So one of like my hopes policy-wise is for us to kind of wake up that, you know, what we feed our bodies actually matters a lot. Mm -hmm. And so let's, you know, tax the stuff that's bad for us and subsidize the stuff that's good for us. Like we know what those things are. Let's make those options more readily available. Let's make them more financially available and let's reduce the temptation of the ones that are not great for us. So that's like my little like dream. That's not my crystal ball thing, but that's my, my little dream in terms of like having a population that's actually eating nourishing things. Um, um, Great idea. <laughs> Will that tax. happen? I don't know. You said the word tax, and all of a sudden, <laughs> everyone's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so we taxed cigarettes, and smoking went down. So I'm a big believer in the idea of like taxing, you know, massive things of soda. People drink less soda at that point. Like mm-hmm. removing soda machines in schools, for instance, was a huge, huge controversy. But it's like, of course, if they're not there, kids are going to drink less of them. And that's a good thing for them. You're applying logic though. I, mean, I, logic. I know, I know that's, that's, the that's the problem. That's the problem. So this is why, this way I can't work in policy. Um. Um, so the, the crystal ball, where are we going? Where are we going? Um, I think we're going into more and more mechanisms. So one thing that like in terms of biology, in terms of research, one thing that's really cool is we can now do what are called omics 
approaches. So we can not only, let's say, find out, okay, what are a few of the genes that are changed, but do something called genomics to see, okay, what are all the genes in the system and how are they being affected? Or um, microbiome, the ohm is the same as omics. It's what are all the bacteria doing? Or proteomics, what are all the proteins in our body? And as we develop these kinds of data sets, and especially when they're becoming public, so a lot of scientists can look at each other's work and analyze it in different ways, we can start to pick up on the fact, oh, you know, like this bacteria seems really important in this disease, or this group of bacteria seem really important for regulating these kinds of processes, or these kinds of genes seem really important for these proteins, which seem really important for health. We can start seeing these kind of big picture stuff that wasn't available to us before this like sequencing technology Mm -hmm. came out. So I feel like that's sort of where the research is going and it's really going to help direct us towards sort of new targets for mental health that aren't just like, let's try to get more serotonin because serotonin is great, but it's not the end of the story. So that's kind of almost putting like it's cocktail of things that on a big scale might help like taking yeah. that and make is it like pill form like I mean improving diet is one thing that like yeah. makes sense but I mean I think the way our society works like just give me a pill make me skinny and make me better like yeah. that's what we want right like does that like is that what you kind of might happen or is it more complicated than that I think it's like an option um I mean I really hope we just move towards like holistic approaches so Yes, part of it is like, give me a pill because maybe I have essentially what an injury is, where these things that happen to me or even just the experience of illness has changed my brain and changed the way my brain works. So I need something to help me support that the same way that you need crutches if you break your leg. It doesn't make sense to walk on your broken leg, right? So medication is really good for that. But then it's like, okay, but also give me a good diet that can support my body and also give me, teach me emotional tools so that this injury doesn't happen again. So I can get stronger. Also provide me with adequate living situations so that I don't experience all these additional hardships as I'm trying to heal. Like that's the dream. That's the policy dream. Mm. It's an expensive dream. So (laughs) it's a, you know, it's a, I think a, a lot of people would be like, that's what we want, right? Like that, it makes yeah. so much sense. It's, it, it, it is unconceivable to me that like, we can't make that transition, even in at least some capacities. Like I understand, you know, it's expensive. We all, we all understand how do we find the money? Like, but I think like having to remember that half the country still believes that women don't have me don't need deserve rights it's yeah how do we convince these people who can't even seem to grasp the the human decency aspect of life um to come over to our side and understand like the complexity of things that people might need in order to like just have the the bare minimum right? Like it's not asking everyone gets a million dollar job. It's providing the necessities that were guaranteed to us as like human rights, basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But the thing is there, what's kind of cool is that researchers know this. So a lot of researchers looking at like uh, human populations and human interventions do cost analyses Mm. in order so that then they can take this to the government and be like, Hey, these preventative measures will actually save you this much money because we're also preventing these people from developing type two diabetes. We're also reducing their risk of cancer. We're also reducing the amount of uh, 
social welfare you'll need to give them because they're able to work and don't need to be on disability. We're also reducing the amount of sick days that they take. And here are all the costs that you save. And hopefully those things will be convincing enough to make that transition. So it's like the initial transition is expensive, but then long-term it's very cost-effective to have a healthy and functioning society and to have healthy and functioning people in that society. And I, I personally don't think I would be up for that task because I think I would get very frustrated. So. Uh, yeah, the government moves slow, but yes, I mean we like we all I think have to know that that making the investments now will pay for themselves in the future. It's creating that political will and um, you know to to invest now, right? Because I mean. I, I don't pretend I understand economics and deficits and government things. I'm just like, just me neither. Me. I'm like, a scientist. Like, <laughs> yeah, outside my area of expertise. So, but we saw with the pandemic, how quickly they can move if they need to move and come up with things. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, that, that could be a, a whole podcast yeah. in itself. Well, it's so many big topics, yeah. um, but I appreciate this uh, a lot. It was really informative, interesting and you're just such a lovely person. So I really Thank appreciate you, you uh, joining me. You're a lovely person too. I had a lot of fun. It was <laughs> um, a really fun experience. <laughs> is like, I don't know, do you publish any of your work anywhere? Like do you have a website? I mean, it's the chance to give a plug something. So if you want to do social yeah. media, if you have like a, some research coming up, people can check out. Now is your time. Now is my time. Um, well, some of my older work, um, mostly from my undergrad and kind of early grad school is available. If you look up my last name and microbiota, you'll find stuff. If you just look up my last name, you'll find my family because they're also academics. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to add in the word microbiota. Um, I do have a couple of things coming up, but honestly, the best way to kind of find me on the internet and to get in touch with me is on my Twitter. So I'm wondering if you can put the handle maybe Absolutely. like in the link and stuff. Cause yes. yeah, my inbox is very much open. I love talking to people. I love having opportunities to kind of do the science communication stuff or talk about mental health. Yeah. And that's why like, I super appreciate you, uh, people like you, Anna's other colleagues, other people I've had on it's, it's explaining some of these very advanced concepts um, in a way that is one digestible that I can understand that I can be like, Oh yeah, here's how that relates to that. Um, But it's just understanding like, Science can be so intimidating, right? We were joking about how you didn't understand biology. I'm like, I got like 60s I in science. I love, yeah. That's why I love learning about it. But it's making it understandable, like that we can, un- so intergenerational trauma, all these things we see, buzzwords that get thrown at us. Okay, what does it mean? And like, how does it actually apply to real life? And that's why I love like the work that people like you do, because it's also necessary in, in the advocacy world and all this other stuff, right? Like I yeah. mentioned that in the speech, like we all need to be working together that it doesn't have to be, you know, science, business, advocacy, community, you know, and all these different silos, right? Like we should all be like, yeah. okay, reach that same goal. So again, just thank you. It was really yeah. awesome. And thank you. It's very motivating also. Cause like sometimes as a scientist, you're just like in your little stuff and you're like, no one cares about what I do. This is not important. This doesn't matter. Especially like as the imposter syndrome ramps up oh. in graduate studies. So it's like, this is a very good motivator to be like, oh, okay, maybe my work does matter. And I should finish writing my thesis. You should. Um, <laughs> I should. It does matter yeah. Cause it's actually super exciting. And uh, you know, if you were studying something that like was very minute, I'd be like, you know, I'd find it interesting, but like mm. you're 
what you're stumbling upon uh, has some pretty big implications. Yeah, so it's, it's I like I like the big picture stuff quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. So Perfect. I re- really really enjoyed this podcast. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's a cool opportunity. <laughs> Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.